Hi there. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome back. Uh, it has been six months, we are calculating, since our last Bible study. And we're not even halfway through the, the book of 1 Corinthians yet. And we've been at this for over two years. But it's wonderful to be back. It's wonderful to have you back. And if you're new to our Bible study, let me go through everything. And if you're not new, let me remind you how, what we're doing, right? So our Bible study is on 1 Corinthians. And I call it, uh, um, the, is inspired by the homilies of St. John Chrysostom. So St. John Chrysostom, we think in this case, uh, probably 385, 386, when he was the priest in Antioch. Uh, he was preaching, and this was actually a Bible study, although we call it homilies. He did a Bible study, and he, by the way, preached on almost every book of the Bible. He was an incredibly prolific uh, teacher and preacher. And so what we do is every homily is, a, is the next section of the Bible study, right? So it goes in sequence. So this is session 21, and so it um, is homily 20. If you're new, you can go to, a, to my website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org, if you're watching on YouTube, and you can download the study guide. And on the study guide is a link to the homily. And so every week is a different homily, and so we read the homily in advance, and then I draw some out and I talk about it uh, during our Bible study. Also for our Bible study, and you have to be watching on YouTube for this to work, we have a live chat room for those who are participating online. And the live chat room is moder moderated by the most brilliant chat room moderator I have ever been married to. I mean, I have ever met. <laughs> My wife, Presvita Vasi, is the chat room moderator. She's on right now. I see some people are already up there giving their greetings in the Christos Anestis. By the way, Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. He is risen. And um, so that's how we continue. So it's been a long time, but we are session 21, homily 20. We are in 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to study chapter 8. But before we get there, Presvita, who's online? Tonight we have Philip from Macedonia, Denise from Virginia, Ray and Jane from Lando Lakes, and Angeliki from all of Canada. And we presume there's other people there too. Not everyone participates in the live chat, but welcome, welcome, welcome to everyone. So let's go ahead and say our prayer, and then we'll, we will begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds, that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments, so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things which are pleasing to you. For you, Christ, our God, and the light of our souls and bodies, do we give glory. Together with Father's up beginning in your all-holy good and life-creating spirit, always, now, and forever, and to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. So, it's been so long, but we're not going to go back. We're only going to push forward. So if you're new or if you want a refresher, again, on my website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org, slash Bible study, and you're going to see all of the sessions that we've gone through so far. And you'll see a study guide and you'll see the link to the video. So 
If you want to binge watch me, something definitely worthy of binge watching, I think, myself. You, don't laugh too hard over there. Uh, but you want, if you want to get caught up, you can. Otherwise, we're just going to push forward. So today's study is chapter 8 uh, in the 1st Corinthians. So, who wants to read chapter 8 for us in the Bible? See, look, by the way, you can't see this, right? So, we have two sides of the room. On this side are those who don't want to read, and there's no microphones anywhere near them. And on this side are those people willing to read on the microphone. So I won't tell you which is lopsided one way or another, but suffice it to say, there's at least one person willing to read. So, Connor, if you wouldn't mind, turn your microphone on, get good and close, and read all of chapter 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom all things, and we for, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all, are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend, com, commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temper, temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So there is a lot to unpack there. Um, and again, so, so you know how the study guide works? In the homily, our editors have created section numbers. And so on the study guide, I have the excerpts that I'm drawing out by section number. So if you want to be able to find them in the homily, you can. That make sense to everybody? Okay. All right, so section number one, quote number one. Eating meat offered to idols is dangerous. Listen to St. John Chrysostom here. For, on the one hand, those who still retained the fear of idols and knew not how to condemn them took part in those meals because they saw the more perfect sort doing this. And hence, they got the greatest injury, since they did not touch what was set before them with the same mind as the others, but as things offered in sacrifice to idols. And the thing was becoming a way to idolatry. On the other hand, these very persons who pretended to be more perfect were injured in no common way, partaking in the tables of demons. So here, Chrysostom is pointing out that, that well, he's helping us see what St. Paul's doing. So let's start there. What St. Paul is doing is he's trying to bring the idea of the a food worship to the idols, and he always, like he does in Romans, he's talking about the weak and the strong in faith, right? And so what the first thing was he wants to equalize everybody, but then he's saying that there's danger here, even though there's no danger, right? So the danger is not what they think it is, and that's what he's going to draw out for us in this homily, okay? So that's, that's why it's dangerous, because even though there are no gods, the truth is, although they can't hurt, harm us by eating of the meat offered to idols, there's a different kind of harm, is what Chrysostom is helping us understand that St. Paul wants us to see, right? So it's, it's kind of like... St. Paul is deflecting the harm on the one end and elevating the harm, a, a different kind of harm over here, so to get people to understand what the real danger is. The real danger is not the meat. The real danger is something totally different, which is what he's going to draw out 
um, through his through chapter eight, and Saint John Chrysostom is going to draw out for us in this particular study. Point number two: Saint Paul brings us to humility by helping us see that knowledge is common to all. Remember, I said he's going to kind of bring everyone together here. Chrysostom says this: For they who possess something great and excellent are more elated when they alone have it. But if it be made out that they possess it in common with others, they no longer have so much of this feeling. So what's he referring to? If you look back here at the homily, just the very first verse, I mean, I'm sorry, in uh, 1 Corinthians, we know that we all have knowledge. So what St. Paul is doing, what St. John's Christum helps, wants us to help us understand is that by St. Paul saying we all have knowledge, He's kind of deflating those who have the egos. He's kind of bringing us down because sometimes, and he says, knowledge puffs up, right? So there's this, there's this sense that St. Paul wants us to be humble, and that's going to, he's drawing that up because that, in fact, is the danger of eating meat offered to idols. Let's move on to section two in the homily, quote number three. Knowledge without love. Now remember, these are things that benefit us today, not just understanding St. Paul. Knowledge without love is imperfect and dangerous. St. John Christum says this, In that he shows that not even this thing itself was in all points complete, but imperfect and extremely so, and not only imperfect, but also injurious, unless there were another thing joined together with it. For having said that we have knowledge, he added, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that when it is without love, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance. Right, so knowledge is not everything it's cracked up to be, right? Is that where knowledge's power comes from? Uh, no. That same, that same sense no, by the way, they can't hear you because your microphone's not on. Oh. <laughs> by the way, sometimes, but it forgets to turn her microphone on. But. We, we, won't, we won't go there. Okay. But you notice here, because he's, he's drawing us into a sense of humility, because we have to reach that humble zone to accept what St. Paul has to teach us. So that's where he's going first. Point number four. The lack of love is the source of all sorts of evil. Chrysostom says this. Do you see how he already sounds the first note of his discourse concerning love? For since all these evils were springing from the following root, i.e., not from perfect knowledge, but from, their, but from their not greatly loving nor sparing their neighbors, whence ensued both their variance and their self-satisfaction, and all the rest which he had charged them with, both before this and after, he continually providing for love, so correcting the foundation of all good things. Right? So he's this sense of love, this sense of, of, of humility, because it's the love and the humility that's going to finally, when we get to the end of this chapter, right? When he says, I will never again eat meat. Right? You can't get there until you reach that humble, loving state. And that's where he's, that's where he's bringing us. Alright, section 3. Point number 5. All knowledge is imperfect. But even though you have it by yourself alone, though you be modest, though you love your neighbor, even in this case you are imperfect in regard of knowledge. And this is where he's talking about here um, in verse 7. And if everyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Right? So, um, all knowledge is imperfect. Again, he's, he's trying to bring us into a sense of humility. It right? doesn't matter, even if we have love, we have to understand that even as much as we know, there's still more to know. There's still not that perfect knowledge, right? That's, that's where he's going at with it. Okay, so here we go, point number six. Only after defeating their knowledge as common and imperfect does St. Paul move on to the doctrine, right? So he's 
This is, this is the journey St. Paul is taking us. He does this all the time. He does it in Romans. He does it all over the place where St. Paul kind of brings us someplace in a low humility way, not in a, a pejorative way, but bringing us into a to then launch us into this amazing into this amazing doctrine. So listen to what Chrysostom says here. Only after defeating their knowledge as common and imperfect does St. Paul move on to the doctrine. Having then so much at large allayed their irritation, he begins to speak doctrinally, saying thus, right? So you'll see this a lot with St. Paul. He knows that if he launches directly into the teaching, no one's going to pay attention. Either they're going to think it's not about them, either they're going to think that they already know the answer, either they're going to think they're superior, either they're going to think they're in, whatever. If he just launches in, he doesn't have the audience. So he so is, is I don't want to say crafty in the, in the negative sense, like, ooh, he's crafty, but he's, he's careful, huh? Skilled. Skilled, thank you very much. In... In, in bringing us in, and this is the case we've been for if you've been following my Bible studies at any length of time, right? This constant sense of condescension to then elevate us. Christ condescended to become one of us to elevate us. The apostles condescended to our level to elevate us. Saint Paul comes down into our level to elevate us. There's this constant, because we can't go up until we're willing to accept that St. Paul has something to offer us. And that's where he is here. So finally he can launch into the doctrine. And in the homily that brings us to section 4, uh, quote number 7. Whether we are strong or weak, we should avoid meat offered to idols. This is a very controversial thing in the context of today's Christian message. You know, the whole, I can do whatever I want. Well, this is not necessarily what St. Paul has to say here. So, point number seven. For indeed, his mind is to prove both that one ought to abstain from this kind of banquet and that it has no power to hurt those who partake of it things which were not greatly in agreement with each other, right? So I mentioned this already. He's, he's going to show that eating the meat has no harm. However, eating the meat has a different kind of harm. It isn't the meat that is harmful, okay? And so this is where, where Chrysostom wants us to say, you know what, whether or not we are strong or weak, we should avoid the meat offered to the idols because there's a different layer of danger for us, okay? Which, by the end of the chapter, we see where St. Paul's going. So, but that's the theological, that's the doctrinal point that St. Paul's making. Section number five, quote number eight. Just because people call things gods doesn't mean they are gods. <laughs> All right, this is an interesting one. Since he had said that an idol is nothing and that there is no other God, and yet there were idols, and there were those that were called gods, that he might not seem to be contradicting plain facts, he goes on to say, for though there be, for though there be that are called gods, as indeed there are, not absolutely there are, but called, in re, not in reality having this, but in name, be it in heaven or on earth. In heaven meaning the sun and the moon and the remainder of the choir of stars. For these too the Greeks worshipped, but upon the earth demons, and all those who had been made gods of men. Yet to us there is one God, the Father. Right, so it's kind of interesting that, that we use the words, and even we sing it to this very day, right? The hymn, Tisteos Megas, who is so great as God? as our God, right? As if there's other gods. Well, we don't believe there's other gods, but people call, okay, I didn't sing it so well. No, you didn't. Okay. <laughs> I do have a question. All right, well, you got to turn your microphone on for a question. We have a question from the um, dialogue. Philip in Macedonia wants to know, what would meat offered to idols be in today's context? 
boy, Philip, you always throw me for a loop. Um, um, I'm going to have to think about that. I, I think in today's context, well, immediately I think of money because money has become its own idol in today's, in today's world. But um, I'm going to have to get back to you, Philip, on that one. Do you have, does the other, uh, we have another Philip in the room. Do you have a suggestion? Yeah, turn your microphone on. I was thinking of something which is a pet peeve of yours, which is the Mati, because I'm making a connection with the Mati. Not that it's... Well, I guess, right, I guess I could say this, Philip, um, as I'm thinking through this. So we live in a pluralistic society, at least America is, I'm sure Macedonia is the same way, where there are many non-Christian religions that might pray over things, right? This is a big thing, like, for example, you know, maybe I'm... Uh, in a, in a city council meeting and someone is offering a prayer that may not be an orthodox prayer, the prayer doesn't necessarily harm me, but that if I'm pre pre um, uh, participating in the prayer, then I'm endorsing the prayer. And what, where St. Paul's going to go with this eventually is that it leads the weaker-minded person to then get sucked in, saying, well, if he's doing it, then I guess I can do it too. So maybe that, that context of our tangent participation in some of the non-Christian elements of our society, because we can't avoid it by going out into public, maybe that's the closest thing that we can compare to the meat offered to idols. Just keeping in mind, very literally, there were meat markets that sold meat offered to idols. So that was an actual thing. You could actually go and buy meat that had been offered to various pagan gods. Okay, and so that very specifically was, is what St. Paul is talking about here. That was a real thing back then. I'm not quite sure that's real today, but I think maybe the closest thing, Philip, would be this participation in the many non-Christian elements of our contemporary society. Denise wants to know if it's like participating in yoga. Where is yoga? Yeah, that's a great one. There <laughs> we go. This is why I married her, ladies and gentlemen. She's absolutely brilliant. Well, Denise said it. I'm just, I just repeated it. Oh, see that? Denise, I gave my wife credit for your great comment. Correct. Yoga is a great example, right? People say, well, it's just exercise. And just exercise can't harm me if I'm not doing the chanting and stuff like that. But then weaker people see me doing yoga and they go, oh, it must not be dangerous. Okay, I participate in yoga. When in fact, even the motions of yoga are spiritual to those to the participate. So thank you. I hope Philip, I got his, I hope we got his answer. And Denise, I apologize for uniting you to my wife. Yes, and then we gotta move on. Okay, so really quick, I, my, first in, my first gut thought was, it's like um, when, you, when you're Orthodox and you have a dinner party and you're like, we're going to, we're Orthodox and we're fasting, but we're going to serve meat in case someone isn't fasting. And, but it's like, but that's not right because that's like the total opposite. But it just seems like people will find an excuse to eat meat. And, um, okay, so, and, and, and I guess that's really not, not it's not really offered to idols, but what I will say as a priest, for example, um, you know, we hear all the time that you should eat whatever someone offers you and all that kind of thing when you go to their home. And I have to, as a priest, be careful 
Because in the same way that if I go somewhere, oh, the priest was eating meat, I guess it's okay, or this or that. Because truth be told, whether I fast, whether I don't fast, it's not going to send me to hell. And so um, maybe that's another good comparison. It's just basically the fasting rules. However, not fasting has some spiritual danger to it. It has nothing to do with the food. It's the other spiritual nuances of the practice of fasting. Just like it's not the meat itself that is dangerous in the, in the meat offered to idols, but the underlying spiritual nuances of the, of the example. So we've given you a few examples, Philip. I hope that answers your question. You already said thank you. Okay, moving on to section six. We have a doctrinal statement by St. Paul. The Father and the Son are both divine. And as the Chrysostom says this, and as the Father is not thrust out from being the Lord, in the same sense the Son is the Lord, because He, the Son, is spoken of as one Lord. So neither does it cast out the Son from being God, in the same sense as the Father is God, because the Father is styled one, one God. Right? And if you read the homily further, he goes on to even address why St. Paul doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit here, right? So, although we don't need to worry about that tonight, but he does go, why wouldn't St. Paul talk about the Holy Spirit? Because of the context, right? In this case, St. Paul was speaking to Gentiles. He was speaking to pagan Greeks. It didn't really matter at that point if he mentioned the Holy Spirit. What he was mentioning was the Father and the Son being both God, right? That's an important doctrinal statement there. Section 7, quote number 10. Just because we call them both Lord and God does not mean we believe in more than one God. St. Paul is speaking to a particular audience. See, I've already given part of my answer. Oh, look, he does it right there, Holy Spirit. And this is why, having called the Father God, he calls the Son Lord. If now he ventured not to call the Father Lord together with the Son, lest they might suspect him to be speaking of two lords, nor yet the Son God with the Father, lest he might be supposed to speak of two gods, why marvel at this, not having mentioned the Spirit? He con his, his context was so far with the Gentiles, his point to signify that they're that with us there is no plurality of God. See, I, I, was, I jumped ahead of myself there. Okay. So, again, and this is important for us when, in, in Bible study in general. Just because one verse doesn't address something doesn't make it not true. Right? So, you can easily see how you could be drawn into heresy about the Trinity if you limited your description of the Trinity to right here where St. Paul doesn't bring up the Holy Spirit. And you can launch onto this entire thing saying, see, St. Paul didn't say the Holy Spirit was divine right here in 1 Corinthians. You see how dangerous that is? Just because he didn't mention it in one verse doesn't mean it's not true because there's an entire context and there's other verses and there's other writings. You've got to take the wholeness in. And that's why Christum says, don't worry about that. Just because he didn't mention it doesn't mean it's not true. right? And that's something we fall into, especially when we start uh, grabbing just one verse at a time to make, I think that's, you know, proof texting, I think it's called. You know. I do think of a... You've got to use your microphone to my mind when you say that is predestination um, where people people will use the verse that says those whom he called he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the son and people always use that verse to you know to try to prove a particular concept of predestination uh, how was, uh, right right again very dangerous very dangerous when you just plug into one verse as if it's all there is so, since I've already said it, let's see the rest of what Chris is going to say about the Holy Spirit. Quote number 11. The Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and Son. For if he be rejected from the Father and Son, much more ought he not to be put in the same rank with them in the matter of baptism. 
where most especially the dignity of the Godhead appears and gifts are bestowed which pertain to God alone to afford. Right? So that's just Chrysostom reaffirming that the Holy Spirit is in fact divine. Now, Chrysostom is not saying this, but I'm going to add it here. Remember, one of the reasons we're studying it this way is because St. John Chrysostom was preaching in Antioch, which at that time was a city very similar to contemporary American society. Multicultural, highly educated, highly wealthy, right, pluralistic, and had a sense of division to it. There was this party and that party and this party and that party. And so was Corinth when St. Paul was preaching to them. So there's some parallels for us here. Now, again, Chrysostom does not say it like this when he presents it in the homily, but I'm going to add this. If Chrysostom found it necessary to add this section about the Holy Spirit in his homily, where St. Paul had eliminated it, or not, not included it, that suggests to me that he was responding maybe even to something he had heard in his own little circle, saying, well, why didn't St. Paul talk about the Holy Spirit? So Chrysostom doesn't just randomly throw stuff out there. So, again, he doesn't say it in here, but I'm going to suggest that if he spent time saying, don't worry, the Holy Spirit really is divine, then someone must have said something for him to add that to the context, because that in no way is part of chapter 8 in, in 1 Corinthians. So that, that's, my, that's my guess, is that Chrysostom was responding to something here. And again, it helps us, just like we see people kind of pulling in this and that and this, that context is always important for us. All right, point number 12. St. Paul doesn't say everything every time. He leaves some for later. For there was no need of mentioning all he had to reprove, particularly as he intended to visit them again with more severity, right? So even this, not only is he's talking to a particular audience, but he plans to talk to them again. You know, you can't, like priests have to learn, you can't get everything into every sermon, <laughs> right? Frankly, I think it's one of the things that, that is a blessing for us in that every year we repeat the gospel stories. And so every year I get a chance as a priest to add to what I said the year before and to what I said the year before and to what I said the year before. Because if I just got up and said the same sermon every single year, you know, it would be a little boring, I think. They might catch on. They might catch on. All right. Section 8, quote 13. If we believe evil can hurt us, then it can hurt us. Quote, Just as if a man were to think that by touching a dead body he should pollute himself according to the Jewish custom, and then seeing others touching it with a clear conscience, but not with the same mind touching it himself, would be polluted. This was their state of feeling at that time, right? And so how many times do we say, Philip, you mentioned the, the Mati earlier, right? There's no curse that can hurt us. There's no anything, that somebody, that nobody can't put us the evil eye or anything, unless we think they can hurt us. Evil cannot touch us unless we give it permission to touch us. That's what uh, is being said here. And so this is the underlying current of why eating meat offered to idols is dangerous. For those that think it's dangerous, it causes extra harm, and therefore there's danger there. Okay? Section number 9, quote 14. It isn't about meat, as I said before. For the former topic by itself is laboring in vain, since he that hears of another being hurt while himself has the gain is not very apt to abstain. But then rather he does so when he finds out that he himself is in no way advantaged by the thing. Right? It's not about the meat. There's something deeper that St. Paul wants us to see in this whole thing. Section 10, quote 15. It is worse, now we're getting at what St. Paul really wants us to see. 
It is worse to cause your brother to stumble than to eat meat. After having said, take heed lest your liberty become a stumbling block, he explains how and in what manner it becomes so. And he continually employs the term weakness, that the mischief may not be thought to arise from the nature of the thing, nor demons appear formidable. Right? So, it's just meat. But this is where he's saying that we don't want to be a stumbling block. Causing someone else to sin is itself a sin. Especially if we do it knowingly or carelessly, right? Unknowingly, then we can't help it. But when we know what's going on, this is why St. Paul's bringing us into that level. Point number 16. Since Christ died for others, we should accommodate them. <laughs> I mean, that in a nutshell is, is, is really the, the emphasis here. For there are two things which deprive you of excuse in this mischief. One, that he is weak. The other, that he is your brother. Rather, I should say, there is a third also, and one more terrible than all. What then is this? That whereas Christ refused not even to die for him, you cannot bear even to accommodate yourself to him? Right. So here's a person who Christ died for. And you can't even skip some meat for this guy, right? Therein is the essence. Our lack of love and our lack of compassion for our fellow human being, and our, in this case, our fellow Christian, our brother Christian. Yes, Philip. In light of having said that, what comes to my mind in terms of actually putting this into practice is we don't always know what the state of those around us is. So let's say that I or someone else, whoever's the subject, is a person who understands that the idol has no power and whose conscience is not pricked by partaking of the meat offered to the idol. Maybe I don't know that the person across the table is scandalized. So one thing that's always come to my mind with this verse in light of this sort of conundrum is like, if you don't know, then what are you supposed to do? It's like, well, then doesn't this mean that as a rule of thumb, we should always abstain from doing it just in case one of our brothers should be like across the room and then see it happen? But then it's like, well, why did he even mention the possibility of doing it? Anyway? You see what I'm saying? Like this kind of conundrum that comes up. I, don't, I know I didn't phrase that very well. Yeah, and I think Chrysostom also in other homilies has talked about hiding our sins from other people. Right? So in the case of eating meat offered to idols, I would say if you are of the strong sort, then eat it in private. Where eating it is not a scandal and not drawing the weak in. Okay? But keep in mind, if you go back... There's also the connection that eating the meat is also, although there are no gods, there are demons. So even though we, we know that the idols can't hurt us, even though that we know that the meat, the meat by itself is no danger to us, we should still abstain knowing that they are offered to demons. Right? Because evil cannot hurt us unless we believe it can hurt us, right? Now, by then participating in something that was offered to a demon, now we're playing with the demons because in our knowledge, well, we know the idol is nothing. We know there's no really God there. So instead, we already know that that meat is offered to a demon. And now, by participating in that meat, now we're playing with the demon. And since we're playing with the demon, guess what? Now he can hurt us. Yeah, go ahead. So that's kind of like this. is like, if you're starving to death or your family hasn't eaten in two days, which, you know, we could imagine might have been then, so you have an option. You either feed your family or tell them for a third night in a row, I'm sorry, we, we, we have nothing to eat. So in that case, maybe you 
get the food from the meat market where the guy who slaughtered the, the animal offered it to idols. You bring it home, you pray over it and bless it, and, and you eat the food because you don't, you're not going to starve to death and starve your family to death. Is that the idea? Basically, it's like in a, in a situation. Yeah, I, I think we, we also have to remember that in the ancient world, eating meat was not a very common thing. I mean, chances are, unless it was your own Christian feast, like Pascha with the lamb, chances are the only source of meat was from the temples. Because meat was not a regular food source unless it was some kind of celebration. And if it's not a Christian celebration, what celebration is it? A pagan celebration. So this is, I think, we also kind of, in our American context where everything is meat, 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 especially since after Pascha we've been making our way through all the foods we miss. There is one more thing I want to say. <laughs> yeah. Also reminds me of how, um, I don't remember how to, you know, quote the story, but if I could paraphrase it, it was when Jesus was going to do a miracle, was intending to do a miracle. And the, no, it was the apostles. Well, there's a, a couple instances where there's one where the apostles are trying to do a certain miracle, cast out certain demons. and They're not able to do it. And they go to Jesus and say, why aren't we able to do this? And he says, it's because you lack faith. And then he goes and demonstrates that he can do it. And in another case, Jesus wants to do miracles to help the people in this place, but they lack faith, and he is not able in that context to do the miracles because of the lack of the faith of the people who would receive the miracle. So this reminds me because it's like your faith kind of is, there's a, there's a proportional relationship where if you have the faith, then it can happen. And if you don't, then it can't. I mean, is that is this kind of like the inverse of that? I'm not sure because miracles are a totally different category. Miracles have an intended audience, um, so I'm not quite sure that there's a a parallel there, because there's never a context of where, where Christ cannot do a miracle. He might choose to not do a miracle, um, but. But um, again, I'm, I'm not sure. That's the, I, don't, I wouldn't say that's the, the same context here because totally different different audience. But all right. So <clears throat> now we see what Saint Paul had to say. Right? He brings us down in our humility, putting us all at the same level. Whether we're strong, whether we're weak, he sees the danger of eating meat offered to idols. Right? is that it's going to be a stumbling block, that it's going to, it itself is demonic, and so therefore he rests in, then I'll never eat meat again. right? So he's brought us into this point that we would never have even accepted such a thing. And then what does Christosom say? And what? You're going to refuse to do that when Christ died for somebody? So where Christosom goes there now? So what we have, I know because you're new into our Bible study, is we have a whole separate section that I call the life application. What St. John Chrysostom, for those of you at home who are new, what Chrysostom does is he always launches in to some kind of a moral teaching inspired by the passages for that day. Sometimes there's one word, sometimes there's one verse. So here Chrysostom is launching into what I'm calling be holy and glorify God. It's our life application. So you see a totally different section on the, on, the, on, the, on the study guide. It's not at all in Scripture. Now we're just hearing directly from St. John Chrysostom, and it's always some kind of a moral context. So don't worry, for those of you at home, I do have it to put on the screen so you'll be able to read it along with us. So let's look at the first one. Christ died for our brothers. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. For indeed... If comes to folly in the extreme that what things are greatly cared for by Christ and such as he should have even chosen to die for them, these we should esteem so entirely beneath our notice as not even to abstain from meat on their account. Right? So here, right, be holy and glorify God. If God determines someone is worthy enough to die for, then we need to be humble for them too. We need to, we need to be willing to, 
to sacrifice. That's how we honor God, right? By treating for them, by dying, so to speak, in our desire for meat, I guess, in this context, by dying for them just as Christ died for them. That's how we're honoring God, because God thought enough of them to die, right? So we have to elevate them in that context. All right, next quote. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Chrysostom says this. This is in section 12 of the homily, by the way. Think on these things and esteem the pride of man to be nothing. But count the tent maker as well as your brother as him that is born upon a chariot and has innumerable servants and struts in the marketplace. Nay, rather, the former than the latter. Since the term brother would more naturally be used where there is a greater resemblance. Which then resembles the fisherman? He who is supported by daily labor and has neither servant nor dwelling, but is quite beset with privations. Or that other who was surrounded by, with such vast pomp and who acts contrary to the laws of God? Despite not then him that is more of the two your brother, for he comes nearer to the apostolic pattern. I know Christendom is not always easy to understand. What he wants us to see here is, and the tent maker, of course, is Paul. Because St. Paul, even the great St. Paul, was willing to continue working and laboring for his own food, right? So he's saying, we'll turn it to our contemporary American context. Whether he's blue-collar or white-collar, he's still our brother. Okay? We don't honor the white-collar any more than we honor the blue-collar. Right? And he's showing, you know, that St. Paul was a tent-maker. The apostles were fishermen. And there's a, again, there's a much greater context there in the homily itself. I'm just drawing out little bits and pieces. But we want to honor God. We want to be holy and glorify God then we treat each other with the same dignity and honor because we're all brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter where our origin is. It doesn't matter what our social status is. We're all brothers and sisters, okay? Next. Everyone is worthy of honor. Whenever then you see one driving nails, smiting with a hammer, covered with soot, do not therefore hold him cheap, but rather for that reason admire him. Right, this is the long dissertation in, in, the, in the homily. Point number 20. Our good deeds should be for those who cannot pay them back. Something we forget in our modern society. Wherefore God bade us Call to our suppers and feasts the lame and the maimed and those who cannot repay us. For these are most of all properly called good deeds, which are done for God's sake. Right? I mean, you know, how easy, it's so much easier to invite the people who love us. It's so much easier to invite the people who will then invite us back. Okay? Huh? Or who will bring a gift. Or, or who will bring a gift, right. In, but the real good deeds is the reaching out and inviting those who can't do anything in return. We want to be holy. We want to glorify God. That's the person that we esteem. That's the person we reach out to. That's the person that we do something good for, right? And I'm thinking all the way back, of course, this has nothing to do with Corinthians. You know, when Christ said, you know, well, Love those, what? What good do you do to love those who love you back? Even the sinners do that much, right? He says, lend with helping nothing in return. That's what it really means to live that Christian message. All right. So then, our send-off for tonight. What's going to help us lead this next week so we can come back next week for, for Bible study. By the way, we are back live. We'll be here every Tuesday through the month of May. So at least we'll get some Bible studies in this year. Here's our send-off. Our glory is coming later. 
then let us also imitate. For so shall we be visited with the return of all our good deeds, and that abundantly. Because we do all with such a mind as this, so shall we obtain also the brighter crowns. We're not going to get it today. We're not even going to get it in this lifetime. And if we do get the honor in this lifetime, it's just, I guess, a fringe benefit. But with the real glory is coming later. The real glory is coming directly from God. And this is why he says, help those do good deeds for those who can't do anything in return. Because then we really have that reward coming to us. Coming to us from, do we have a question from the chat room? No, just a comment. Just a comment. Go ahead. The chat room just for me. There was a, um, one of our fine parishioners here in um, St. Nicholas once said that in her village, if somebody was sick and they needed to have like meat, they would close all the windows so as not to tempt their neighbors when they were cooking, if they had to cook chicken soup or something for their family. Oh, that's, be that's beautiful. Yeah. And, then, and, and you, you always know, when, like, especially when it's a late Easter, we're, we're still, still fasting, fasting up until like late, late April or May and everyone's barbecuing and you're driving down the street and you're like, oh! <laughs> 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 but the pizza place down the street is like, yeah. So the sense of loving each other enough to say, you know what, I have to eat this because I'm sick, but I'm not going to tempt the people around. Yeah. It's a gesture of love. Right, that's beautiful. That's a, that, is a, that is a true gesture of love, right? That I don't want to drag someone down with me, right? right? Beautiful. All right, any other questions before we go? We're gonna, I'm going to let you go a few minutes. Later. Any other questions for tonight? Anything from the chat room? No, they got quiet. They got quiet. That must have answered all the questions then. Okay, so we're back next week live at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, May 9th. Uh, we will be studying uh, Homily 21. So if you want to read Homily 21 in advance, so you are prepared. And again, like I said, we'll at least get all of May in this year. Um, and then we'll get together again in the fall. So God bless you until next week. Don't forget to live a new life in Christ. Be Transfigured is a production of Be Transfigured Ministries in cooperation with the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida. We depend upon your generosity to maintain our ministry. You can make a safe online donation when you visit our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org.